If you love Push Black's Black History Year, you'll love our newest podcast called Two Minute Black History. In only two minutes, you'll hear little known stories about our people and reclaim the knowledge we need to take action and advance our community. To move towards the future, you've got to look to the past. Learn the history you didn't get in school. Tune in to Two Minute Black History every Tuesday through Friday, right on the Black History Year feed and wherever you listen to podcasts. gotta be suffocating having an officer watch your every move getting your body violently snatched handcuffs placed so tight that they choke your wrists hearing biased authority figures insisting you don't matter and having to deal with this suffocation day after day after day it's not only the reality of millions of incarcerated black people trapped in prisons It's the reality of hundreds of thousands of black students trapped in schools. I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. The similarities between schools and prisons are eerie, to say the least. Every day a black child attends a public school, the more likely they are to become imprisoned. How? Through a nefarious tool of control called the school-to-prison pipeline. Now, you may be familiar with this term, but it goes deeper than you might know. So today we're sitting down with a leader who has been dubbed the godmother of our understanding of this phenomenon to get a comprehensive look on the school to prison pipeline. Judith Brown Dianis is a movement lawyer, professor and executive director of Advancement Project. Advancement Project is a civil rights organization committed to actualizing what they call America's promise of a caring, inclusive, and just democracy. She also has a background in advocacy with a focus on housing, employment, voting, and of course, education. As a pioneer in the movement to dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline, Judith has published transformative reports such as derailed the schoolhouse to jailhouse track. She's been doing this work for over 20 years and it doesn't look like she's stopping anytime soon. White supremacy is getting a hold of black folks as young as it possibly can. And Judith is here to help us understand the tactics and learn how we can protect the futures of black children in America. Before we jump into a great interview Here's a story about the daily horrors black children face in the school prison system. Five terrible ways schools are preparing our children for prisons. It's no secret that America's incarceration system is overpopulated with black people, our people. Part of the problem lies in the environment cultivated early on in our upbringing in the United States educational system. To dig a little deeper, Here are five ways schools in the U.S. are similar to prisons. Hall passes. Slave passes tracked our people traveling without their enslavers. 
Schools use hall passes to authorize where students are permitted, and often school police patrol the halls and discipline students in the hallway without permission. Single file lines. From an early age, schools parade our children through hallways in single file lines, looking forward with their hands at their sides or worse, behind their backs, and following a teacher who directs their movement. This is nearly identical to how incarcerated people are forced to move around prisons shackled in lines. Food. School cafeterias have been serving unhealthy food for decades, just as jails and prisons often do. One Chicago public school banned students from packing homemade lunches, citing health concerns, yet they were serving mystery meat. Banned books. Prisons regularly ban books, as do schools. Both target our stories. One Pennsylvania school board banned a Rosa Parks book and the James Baldwin documentary, I Am Not Your Negro. Cops. Policing in U.S. schools has always been dangerous for our children. 31% of student-related arrests in the United States are black, and our children are three times more likely to get suspended or expelled than white students. We must educate our children to each of these truths and the insidious harm that they foretell. The future of our people depends on it. Judith, what does Black liberation look like to you? Black liberation looks like having joy all the time. <laughs> I think about the things that would free me up, right? That I wouldn't have to have the worries that my forefathers and foremothers had, right? To me, liberation means that um, our people can walk down the street without having a care in the world. It looks like systems that work for us and not against us. Having people in power that love us and want to see our communities thrive. It is a set of um, a set of laws and policies that embrace us and lift us up so that we can all thrive. How does your work as a director of the Advancement Project connect with your idea of Black liberation? So Advancement Project, um, we started it in 1999. Um, I had been a, a lawyer at the NACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. So always like, you know, my legal career has been devoted to black liberation. But I think there was a there was a time when, you know, I kind of realized and some other people who were at the Legal Defense Fund realized that like we just can't rely upon the courts. Right. The courts ain't going to free us. Right. They're just, they're just not right. That's that's not what they're there to do. They're there to constrain us. Right. And as I said, like the laws in this country are built upon racism. They were founded in racism. And so for us, we were thinking about how do we support the people who are on the front lines in our liberation movement? And so that's the work that we do. We work with grassroots organizations who are fighting for our liberation, who are organizing in communities of color and in Black communities, specifically around a range of issues. And what we do is we use the law as a tool, but not as the thing that's going to get us free, right? Sometimes we don't, we don't sue because we know that 
people have sometimes more power and better power than you can get in a courtroom. And so we also do work around voting rights because we want to make sure people can tap the political power that they have through the ballot. And we also do work with young people. And when I say young people, like high school students who are fighting for their freedom and liberation in their school settings. Um, So it really has been a work around how do we build power in our communities to dismantle white supremacy and the structures that it has built. I'm just a black girl from Queens trying to get free. (laughs) And that's the work that I do. Did the Advancement Project start off um, doing that type of work, supporting the folks on the ground, or did you all did that come over time? We started that way. We, we set out to support grassroots organizing, and that really came, again, from the idea that like we can't get free just in the courts, but that people have, you know, if you look over time, right, if you look back at the civil rights movement, it was, you know, yes, very smart lawyers in the courts, but it was the movement that was moving the courts in the right direction. It was the movement that was moving public opinion and the media in the in the right direction. And so our work, we started off our work doing um, education work in the Mississippi Delta. And it was there that um, we started working with a group that was fighting for educational justice for young people in the Mississippi Delta. And we supported them doing everything from getting them on the news, on like local and national news to doing litigation to support their work. I'm curious about what inspired you personally to get involved with this work. Could you talk to us a bit about how you got here? Yeah, so I am. I grew up in a household with a mother who was an educator and a community activist. So I remember my first protest was when I was three years old. I have a father who wore the scars of being in segregated army and all of the disrespect that occurred when he was wearing a uniform. And so race was always a conversation in my household. I grew up in a majority black neighborhood in Queens that's called The Rock. And that is because in the middle of that community, there is a huge boulder that is red, black and green. And if we talk, so if we talk about like narratives, right, that was a narrative for us about being proud black people. That's my beginnings, right? But then became a student organizer against racism on campus in college and then in law school, took over dean's office, you know, and all that kind of stuff, like just around race and racism. And so that's what led me here to do this work. And, you know, I think that for me, I think about it as being Um, This is the work that I was put on this earth to do. It is my purpose and it is my blessing. Let's get into one of the specific areas that the investment project uh, deals with, and that is the school to prison pipeline. What exactly is this school to prison pipeline? So the school to prison pipeline is a um, is basically policies and laws and practices in our schools that um, push young people out of school um, on the basis of race, gender, disability, um, sexual orientation, and either pushes them out into like the streets. Um, through suspensions and expulsions, or may push them directly into the juvenile justice system and the criminal legal system. 
because, you know, we have police in schools, so those arrests, et cetera. So all of these policies and practices that that work to punish young people instead of creating environments where um, where they can thrive and be supported. When some folks hear about police in schools, some folks in our community, many folks probably don't have a problem with that. What are the challenges that come with with that, with these resource officers? So first, like terminology, right? Like some schools call them school resource officers because that was that was a way of us trying to um, give them a nice new name, right? <laughs> but I think for Black folks, number one is to remember that police are police. If we don't trust them on the streets in our neighborhoods, we shouldn't trust them in a building with our children. Advancement Project has a website called policefreeschools.org. We have a, a, a page on there that's assault at maps. And what we did is we tracked the, um, some of the assaults that have happened on students in their schools by police officers. You driving down the street, you get stopped by a cop, something happens very quickly that escalates the situation with the cop, you get assaulted by the cop. That same kind of thing happens in the school, right? With a young person who may say something that the police officer thinks is challenging them and challenging their power, and then all of a sudden they get picked up, thrown to the ground. The other thing we know is the more that we have police in the school, in schools, the more our children are likely to be criminalized, arrested in school for things that are adolescent behaviors. You know, one of the things that I will never forget is a five-year-old girl in Florida who I remember this was on TV. Um, they showed the video of this years ago, but it always stayed with me. And the tears of this black baby stayed with me because she threw a temper tantrum during a jelly bean counting game. It was caught on video because they were going to use it as a training tool. She got taken down to the principal's office where she started to, she continued her temper tantrum, tore things off the walls, threw her little hands at the teacher, like, you know, pummeled the teacher with little pumps. And the cops come in, they push her down on the table, they put her hands, her little hands behind her back and they arrest her. Left her in the back of a police cruiser, crying for hours, crying for her mommy. Um, So we need to understand that the system of policing doesn't differentiate between whether you're a black adult or a black child, right? But that the kind of harm that we sometimes see on the street is the same thing that happens in our schools. And it's an unforgiving system. So if a young person gets caught in the system because they had a fight in school or because they talked bad to a teacher and the teacher decided to have them arrested for disorderly conduct, they are in the system now. And that system eats our people up and disposes of them. And so we have got to be thinking differently about the way in which we imagine safety for our children and for young people that does not dispose of them. What are some of the ways we can think differently about that? So a lot of the work that we do at Advancement Project is um, working with Um, young people who are organizing in their schools for change. And we listen to like, what, what do they think should happen in their schools to keep them safe, to keep the teachers safe and to have a learning environment, right? Because you can walk into some schools and you know right away, this feels like a jail, right? Um, this is not, and if the school feels like a jail, young people know it feels like a, it feels like a jail. And young people are already knowing that they don't care about us, right? And so 
This is about how do we create learning environments that do embrace our young people. And so that means, um, you know, do we have counselors in our schools? Because a lot of young people are going through a lot of stuff, right? I mean, and and we don't have um, counselors. You know, we have some school districts have like counselors that move from one school to another. They're shared between schools, et cetera. Um, We also have counselors that are not culturally competent. You know what? just any old counselor talking to your child. You know what I mean? Like like people that don't understand our culture, don't understand our people. We don't really want them as people, and even some black folks, you know, sometimes you don't want them being the counselors either, right? And so having culturally competent counselors is important, but not just counselors, also restorative justice, right? And restorative justice is when we talk about that. It's not, so let's say a young person's getting ready to get suspended, right? Instead of getting suspended, when you suspend a young person, right, that means days out of school. Days out of school means a loss of learning. When that young person returns back to school, now they're behind in their studies because they haven't kept up because they weren't in a classroom. They come back to school and they're more frustrated. Then they get thrown out again. And it becomes this, you know, ever evolving thing for young people. Instead of that, Why aren't we thinking about how to talk to the young person about what was going on when you did X, Y, and Z? If people have been hurt by it, let's bring those people into the room and let's talk about it because we don't, suspending a young person doesn't get at the root causes, right? And so a lot of the work that we need to do is get at root causes. But also there's often adults in a school building that exacerbate problems that don't know how to deescalate, right? They don't know how to talk to young people with respect, but also with a loving voice and a loving hand, right? And so it's not just about treating the young people as there's something wrong with them, but maybe we need to be thinking about everybody in the school needs to be on the same page about how we are going to treat each other with love. When you all are working with young folks that are organizing in the schools, what type of welcoming or resistance have you seen from some of the adults that you're referring to? Yeah, it's, I mean, we get a lot of resistance. (laughs) And we get resistance from a range, right? You get a resistance from, um, from teachers who feel like, you know, I'm on the front lines. I wanna just teach. I don't wanna deal with all these disciplinary issues, right? Um, you get resistance from parents who sometimes are like, you know, I, I, we've done work where we did some pol- some focus groups of black parents who were like, this is what happened when we took the Bible out the classroom, spare the rod and spoil the child, right? And some people who want to go back to, you know, those, the practices that were put in place by our slave masters, right? It <laughs> want corporal punishment in the schools. And so we have that. And so for us, it's really about how do we get environments where everybody's winning? Because if young people are engaged, if young people feel like people care about them and are not ready to dispose of them, their behavior becomes a reflection of the environment that they are in. And so we're often, you know, feel like we're on the other side of the equation from teachers in particular. And it's not just about the, it's, it's about the police in schools, right? Because the other thing is there's other ways to get safe, like schools now have cameras at the front door and doorbells and all that kind of stuff. So the intruder stuff you can like, you can, you can take care of, right? 
Um, the environment in the school has to be safe for people so that they also feel like they're safe if they're LGBTQ students, that they're not being bullied, right? All of those things are really important. And, you know, we just have to acknowledge that it's so it's the police, but it's also these suspensions, right? Because when you dispose of a young person through a suspension, you are telling them that we're punishing you for punishment's sake. You're not going to learn anything from this. You're going to go home and maybe you're not going to go home. Maybe you're going to be on the streets. Maybe you're going to get into more trouble because now you're on the streets, right? And we have to understand that there are racial disparities, right? This, this stuff hits black kids harder than it hits everybody else, right? It is because a lot of times when young people are suspended or arrested, it's for subjective things. So you get suspended for disobedience or defiance. The, the same thing could happen with a white child where it's like, oh, that white child is like expressing themselves. You know, like they're, you know, they're challenging authority in a very good way. A black kid does the same thing and they are challenging authority in a bad way and they get the suspension, right? And so some of the work that we do is making sure that those kinds of subjective offenses are not allowed in disciplinary codes. That kind of disobedience also becomes a disorderly conduct with a cop. A cop says, oh, you know, you running down the hallway and the teacher told you to stop. So now I'm, I'm hitting you with disorderly conduct charges. So we have to understand the racism that infects the workplace and the rest of the world is affecting our children in a school building. And so we have to really get at these numbers and think about what do we want for our children? What kind of adults do we want them around? What kind of environments do we want them in so that they know that they are loved and valued and so that they can understand that we have expectations that they are going to thrive. And if we don't have that kind of expectation around thriving for our children, we will never be liberated as a people. How much of this is racial bias and how much is high level, intentional, uh, devious, uh, you know, it's a system that's in place or is everything just everything? <laughs> everything is everything, <laughs> right? I mean, look, it's, that, it's hard, it's hard to parse it out, right? Between what is intentional, what's not intentional. For example, if we looked at black girls in particular, black girls are over four times more likely to be expelled four times more likely to be arrested than white girls in school. The research shows, and we know this from like the murder of like Tamir Rice and other young black people, that for black boys, they are seen as older. And when you're seen as older than you are, they expect you to act older than you are. For black girls, adultification happens for them also. So that black girls, as young as five years old, are perceived as needing less protection and nurturing. The way that that plays out is that that little five-year-old girl is like, she's seen as a criminal, even at the age of five. Um, whereas a little white girl, if you had put a little blonde girl in that same situation, <laughs> they would have given her a hug and a lollipop, right? And, and probably wouldn't have even called her mother. Right. They would have held her hand, walked her around and that was it. But the five year old black girl in, in a lot of schools is not deserving of being seen as a five year old child. 
right? And so that's where race comes in big time. Because again, when it comes to the kinds of punishments that are doled out against our children, it is because of the dehumanization of Black people. But to understand that that dehumanization is happening to our children also. I have a four-year-old that's turning five, and I couldn't um, imagine mm. being called up to school for that. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, I know. know. I think we both would have had to have been in the back of the police car if I was called up there right, for Right, right. I mean, when that little girl was arrested, um, my daughter was, she must have been about three or four. I think I feel like they're about the same age. And I just remember, you know, like I just sat and like cried when I saw this video because I'm thinking... That baby will never be the same. She was robbed of her childhood in that moment. And it was at the hands of a school. When you send your children to school, naively thinking that they're going to be protected, that they're going to learn, that their whole mind is going to be expanded, they're going to have great opportunities and, and experiences. And then that kind of crap happens. What are some of those other um, you know, psychological effects? Has there been research done or, you know, any studies done around um, how it's affecting our kids? Yeah, well, it is young people don't actually feel safe with police around. And you could imagine that this also, like, especially now we have a generation of young people who are growing up post-murder of, of Mike Brown. They don't feel safe with with police in the building. They also are more likely to feel kind of isolated and not enjoy their experience in school. So even young people who, researchers, even young people who are the students who are not suspended, if they are in a school where a lot of young people around them are being suspended, they don't feel safe. They don't feel that the system and the school is fair to young people and they don't feel like it is an environment that really does want to see them succeed. So it, so it ruins it for everybody. Yeah, I can relate to that. When I was um, in high school, there was officers, there's at least maybe four or five officers rotating around. Um, and, you know, there was the metal detectors. There was the, you know, interrupting class to come and do these random checks. And, you know, and, you know, I wasn't even trying to do anything or anything would have me looking over my shoulder. Right. Or some, one of my, my partners might say, hey, can you, you know, let me know if you see somebody coming to hold this or hold that. And it's like, um, you know, folks are sort of trained to see both police and these environments in a, a certain way, which from my understanding, you know, it mimics what it what it's like when you're in a correctional facility or whatever the more accurate term is. Um, so I can I can definitely see that. That's right. And it ta- I mean, and then, it you know, so then it takes away from the learning environment. Right. Because if you're if you're a student who's going to a school in a mostly white school district where there are no you know, there may not be any police, there may not be police detectors, and you're you're in the school and you're a white student. You know, we talk about liberation, right? Like, like white people are always liberated, right? They go to schools and their kids are like, oh, I love school. I went to school and I learned about Shakespeare today and I did this and we did this experiment. And we did all that. And our ours are coming home like, 
who that you know that cop tackled somebody today that did that, that, I mean like it f's up your whole experience right it just it because um because we we don't get to be innocent we don't get to be naive we don't get to just have fun and have joy and that starts very young for us right and so then then it becomes just part of the who we are and we and we can't even dream about what something else looks like because we've never seen it, right? We don't even know what it looks like to go to a school where where the teachers care about you and love you and want to see you go to the best schools and want you know and want to want you to come back and speak and want you know and you can go swimming because we got Olympic sized pool and you can do this. You, I mean, we don't even know what that feels like, so that limits us. Yeah. And, you know, as you're talking, just thinking about the ways that I and my peers were sort of trained to uh, accept this sort of constant state of surveillance, you know, and then just as you then go on through life, just accepting the system for what it is like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, there needs to be these police out here watching because that's just how things are in terms of expanding our imagination of what is possible. Can you speak about that into, as it relates to your work specifically? We need to listen to young people more because it is the experience that they are living. And we need to create the conditions for them to dream and to think about what are the things that they would see as, as creating safety for them, but not just safety, but a, a school where they actually want to go to that school, right? Um, and because I know even, you know, with my daughter, when she was in high school, like, I didn't really know a lot of the things that were going on. Right. And like, you know, here I am, an education advocate, you know, but you, you need to take time to even visit the school. If you're a parent, go visit. Even if it's a high school, go visit. Just get a sense of like what that what the environment's like, because like I said, you could walk in a door and know right away how how you would feel if you were a young person going there. So I think. Our involvement as parents, it is, and this is about like the liberation piece that you talk, like, you know, I wish that there would be a time where we wouldn't have to be advocates for our children every day as black parents, right? As where they just went to school and we knew that everything's okay. But when you are a black parent, you got to be an advocate. So being there to be advocates in our day-to-day for our children, to go visit the classrooms, to go visit the school, to be very involved is important. To demand the best of those schools is really important. I also think, you know, for us, we have a national campaign for police-free schools because we don't think our children are safe around the cops. And so we are working with, there's probably about 20 cities that are part of where young people are organizing as part of this national campaign to get police out of schools. But they're also calling for things like counselors. They're calling for restorative justice programs. They're calling for using that money, the millions of dollars that get dumped into police to be reutilized to support them, right? Because we have school districts that have whole ass police departments where they have a chief, they've got captains, they've got Jug sniffing dogs, they've got cruisers, they've got we're literally spending tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in some school districts for police departments. And those cops are not accountable to anybody because they work 
for the superintendent and they don't even listen to civilians. So, so being able to take that money and put it back into supports for young people, back into paying teachers what they should be paid. Those are some of the things that we should be demanding. The U.S. Department of Education keeps data about the disparities and suspensions. They're just starting to keep that around the police stuff. Um, so that data is not great, but we got to keep pushing for that data so that we understand the depths of the problems that, that we have in our schools. And we need to stop the surveillance stuff that happens in schools because people don't, they're like, now, you know, they've got all this facial recognition stuff for parents. They want, you know, fingerprints on everything. And then young people, if they do something in school, they're getting put in gang databases. And once you're in a gang database, you're not coming out of a gang database. Even though you're not in the gang, you are suspected of being in a gang. So all of the the really bad criminal legal system policies that have led to mass incarceration are being used for our children in our schools, too. Did these things happen around the same time or was it a little later? Yeah. So it's interesting. So on our um, on that website, policefreeschools.org, we actually have a timeline of how police got to school. So first of all, police started in schools and kind of like increased around the time of school desegregation. There's no coincidence, no coincidence. Right. So we get cops in schools around that time. Then we see another bump in their presence around the crime bill of 1994, because it was the same time that Joe Biden pushed that bill, but he also pushed a bill um, for safe schools, right? That was about getting guns out of schools, but then it became everything else in addition to guns. And so that's where we really started to criminalize young people and put money into school districts for police. And so that 1994 fight against, you know, the so-called drug epidemic was the thing that kind of like blossomed it out. And then every time we have a school shooting, you know, we throw more money at police and schools. But that hasn't stopped it, right? We've stuck on stupid around this gun stuff. And most of the people who have been involved in gun, in uh, mass shootings in schools are young people who may have gone to that school, maybe graduated, but who needed some help. They needed help and they didn't get the help from from the school or from anyone else. We got to start thinking about root causes. What is causing violence in this country? I mean, this country is built upon violence and colonization. Colonizers used a whole lot of violence to get hold of the land, right? And so that violence continues to be a problem, but it's not just our problem. It's not Black people's problem. It's an American problem that we have to deal with. Uh, I appreciate that overview of the history, Judith. So if this system is obviously not benefiting Black students, uh, who benefits from this at the end of the day? There are, there are systems in place that, that benefit. First of all, if we think about the way in which young people were demonized um, as super predators in the 90s, young people of color in particular, and then Black young youth, that is a, a time in which we really started to, like, as a country, started to villainize and demonize young people. There is a juvenile justice system, I hate to call it that, a juvenile legal system, 
that benefits from it for young people being put into that system. There's a whole correctional facilities, so-called correctional facilities system that benefits from it. There's the police that benefit from what is happening and all of like the security companies. And I mean, and the security companies itself, cameras and all the surveillance tools, the metal detectors, it's big money. It's big money in criminalizing black people. We then are told a story about how much safer we are because we got criminalized. If we could sum up broadly for our audience, alternatives that we can take into the world and have in our mind, how can we be thinking about this issue going forward and what type of actions can we be taking, the most critical actions we can be taking to do something different for the benefit of the community? So, I, you know, I think of this as like, you know, if you were to walk through the day in the life of a child, right? <laughs> like, how would you want that day to look? Right. When they walked into a school building at five years old, at 10 years old, at 15 years old, you would want a school that had high quality teachers, had all of the resources, technologies, good teachers, um, books, et cetera, where they are engaged. Right. And where they are, they are learning and where time is spent making sure that at every step of that from five to 17 years old, they are learning and that they know that they are loved and treasured, right? That they understand their culture, that they know their history about themselves and their people. That is all important where parents have access to the building so that parent-teacher conferences are not just at two o'clock when parents have to, have to work, but that parents have access and can come to the school at different times depending on their schedules, where teachers are making money, that they actually get paid for the important work that we have schools where instead of suspending young people and arresting young people, we, we bring them in and understand what is going on in their lives and give them the supports that they need, where they have peer mediation, where they have you know young people who come in and sit down and say, mm, y'all two had a beef, let's talk about what happened. My daughter did peer mediation, and she said every time they would, they would stop some kind of fight that was getting ready to happen because it was usually about something silly where there really was a partnership between community outside the building and inside the building, because we know sometimes of our, our stuff spills out into the community, but that there really is, um, whether it's the churches or other institutions in a community that are involved and, and in our school buildings, so that we are going to keep us safe. You know, I've seen school districts where, one school district where they had, they put grandmothers in the hallways instead of police. Because they know people like, mm, you ain't messing with nobody's grandma. You know, I mean, you know, mm-mm. and there's a level of respect, right? But that's understanding culture of communities. There's another program where there's some fathers who are in, in the buildings, right? So how do we think out the box about our community and what keeps us safe? Too often we leave this to people who don't know our community and don't know our people. And then policies that are not about punishment. We cannot punish our, our way out of these issues. We have to be, again, able to get to root causes and then provide the supports, whether it's counseling, whether it's health, there's children who are hungry, children that should not be in school hungry. All of those issues get compounded in a school day because a young person was hungry, 
They didn't sleep last night because they had to watch their brother and sister because mom is working two jobs. All of those things are compounded. And so this is about recognizing the whole child and the whole family and building out what are some communities called community schools, where there's doctors and dentists in the school building, where there's social workers in the school building. So in the middle of the day, a young person could be like, mm, I need to go talk to somebody about something that just happened or something that happened at home last night. So that it really does become a wraparound for young people. And if we start to think about the fact that we love our children and not just our, my individual child, but I want to see every black child thrive. We would, we would think about this very differently instead of thinking about me and how I'm safe versus you. But what would it take for us to all get free? Because, you know, the saying, if, if, if one of us ain't free, none of us are free. And so we can't be leaving our people behind in this, right? We can't just say, oh, that's their problem. No, it's our problem. It's our issue. Judah, thank you for joining us on Black History Year. Thank you for having me. That was Judith Brown Dianis, Executive Director of Advancement Project. To learn more about her work and how you can get involved, visit advancementproject.org. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most folks do five or ten bucks a month, but really everything makes a difference. Thank you for supporting the work. Black History Year is a production of Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. Our team includes Tarek Alani, Brooke Brown, Tasha Taylor, and Lily Workner. Producing this episode, we have Sydney Smith and Lynn Webb for Push Black, and Ronald Young Jr., who also edits the show. Black History Year's executive producers are Michael L. Sessor for Lemon House and Julian Walker for Push Black. Peace.